Hello. 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 And welcome to Mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who have decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Each day, together, together, we shine a light on the we truth. Shine a light on the we truth. focus on the things that unite us. We pull each other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared humanity. humanity. Episode 9, Learning from a Veteran. So it's July now. A lot has happened in a very short time. The racist Muslim ban was partially reinstated by a Supreme Court that has recently added Neil Gorsuch to its roster. Trumpcare, a plan championed by Senate Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Paul Ryan that would cause tens of millions of Americans to lose their health care and decimate Medicaid in order to pay for a tax cut for the wealthy, is on the brink of becoming law. Former FBI Director Robert Mueller is now a special investigator looking into Russian interference in last year's election. Several mass shootings have occurred, including one where Capitol Police officers Crystal Greiner and David Bailey took and fired bullets to save the lives of the Republican congressional baseball team. Congressman Steve Scalise was severely wounded. Over 100 Christian Iraqi refugees living in Detroit were ambushed at church on a Sunday and rounded up by ICE for expedited deportation to a country where their lives are in certain danger. Dozens and dozens of people who protested Trump's inauguration are facing a potential 75 years in prison for felony rioting. And that's just some of what's going on. It's easy to see how people could feel overwhelmed and fatigued, but we are not giving up. We are organizing and we are pressing forward. Thousands of Americans in dozens of states marched in the streets to demand Trump's impeachment. Thousands more are confronting their senators about Trump care every day. Friends and neighbors are shielding our immigrant families from deportation squads. We find inspiration and hope in each other and in our shared humanity. This next episode comes from professor, union boom operator, filmmaker, and mobilized producer. Betsy Nagler. When Donald Trump was elected, I couldn't imagine sitting back and watching him and the Republican Congress push forward his agenda. So when I heard that people were mobilizing to resist it, I knew that I wanted to get involved. I also wondered if some of this new activism couldn't benefit from the wisdom and experience of a previous generation of activists. The easiest place to begin looking for that wisdom for me was at home. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in northern New Jersey, my father was executive director of the state of New Jersey chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, and my mother was active in the women's movement, specifically in the National Organization for Women, or NOW. So I decided to start by interviewing my mom about how she became a feminist in the 60s, and how she managed to raise two children and have a career while being actively involved in the fight for women's rights. So the first thing I'm going to have you do is introduce yourself. All right. My name is Iris Nagler. I am 76 years old, retired for the past 10 years. And before I retired, I was an administrator with the New Jersey State Department of Education, where I administered federal grants to school districts to provide professional development. And I did that for 14 years. I have also been a teacher. 
I taught elementary, but mainly high school science for 10 years in Newark, New Jersey. My husband and I were in the Peace Corps, where I taught all the sciences in Malawi, Africa, where we did that for two years. How did you get interested in public service in general? Well, I guess one could say that I started out doing that because teaching was a secure profession, and I enjoyed working with young people. I wanted to work. I've always wanted to work. I think my mother was a good example of that. When I was, when my brother and I were 10 years old, she went back to work full time. She did not enjoy staying home, being a housewife. In fact, she retired as supervisor of the New York City Park Department. Was that unusual at the time for a woman to spend that much time working? Well, it wasn't that common to do what she did. She was ambitious. She wanted to improve herself in terms of salary, in terms of the kinds of positions that she had. And so every opportunity that she could, she would move up. She was a role model, and I didn't just want to be a mother and a wife. I, in fact, wanted to teach secondary school or high school, which we did in the Peace Corps. Uh, and so when we returned after two years, I decided to go for a master's degree in biology, and I went to see the head of the biology department at Queens College, who happened to have been a professor of mine as an undergraduate. He said to me he wouldn't accept me into the program. I was of childbearing age and therefore a risk. And he was also surprised that he had given me a B in his course, <laughs> because it seemed that he, didn't, he wasn't inclined to give Bs to, to young women. He was what we now call a male chauvinist pig. <laughs> <laughs> so I accepted what he said. I mean, I, at that time, my consciousness had not been raised. And I said, yes, I am interested in having children. Maybe he's right. It wasn't until years later that I, <laughs> I thought better of it. But anyway, and in those days, and we're talking about 1965, you didn't have much recourse. So if the head of a, a department doesn't want to take you in into a program, there's nothing you can do about it. I did go for a master's program, uh, but in education uh, with a minor in the sciences. How, how did you end up coming into contact with feminism and taking an interest in it? I mean, obviously, that was sort of a formative experience looking back on it. That's right. It was. Well, there are a number of things that took place. There were some books that came out. Betty Friedan wrote a book, The Feminine Mystique which helped to raise my consciousness. There was, uh, were a couple of women in the building in which we lived who were becoming interested and active in trying to improve uh, women's plight. The, the National Organization for Women was founded around that time. How did you get involved with NOW? What was the story behind the chapter that you formed and everything? Well, a bunch of us were interested in forming a chapter because there were a lot of things that we, were, uh, we wanted to work in. A woman named Judith Nee, who was a professor at uh, Rutgers University, uh, she was very interested in getting girls into um, the Little League. So that was one of the activities that we got involved in. Women were not able to get, here was another area, women were not able to get credit cards in their own name if they weren't fully employed. So that was another area that we fought for. And within a fairly short period of time, we had a very large chapter. We had as once as many as over 400 people in the Essex County chapter. Hmm. We formed committees to work on particular you know, actions that we were interested in. We would contact the newspapers 
and indicate when we were going to take an action somewhere about some particular issue. We'd put out press releases. Letter writing campaigns? Letter writing campaigns, yeah. Or we would lobby Congress. So we had lobbyists, people who would lobby Congress, our state legislature, our federal legislatures in Washington, D.C. So it was another a series of actions that we took. And we would have to work with senators to get some of our legislation. They would promote it, they would sponsor it, and then they would push it through. Marches. Marches, right. There were a couple of large marches that took place uh, in New York City. There was one big march where women, they, they burned their bras. That was a big thing in those days. What was that supposed to symbolize? Freedom. Bras are constraining. There were a whole bunch of things. There was, there was also the fact that women decided not to wear makeup. Uh, they changed their style of clothing, and they wore pantsuits. Pantsuits became a big thing, you know, not to have to wear skirts and dresses in the office. We were fighting for equality uh, with pay in terms of how much women got paid. We, were, we also fought for um, changing the ads in the newspapers so that they wouldn't be women's jobs ads for women and ads for men. In other words, a separation of the sexes within the ads in the paper for employment. We would actually, you know, go into the, the, the local newspapers and fight for these things. And at the beginning, they would back down. The newspapers would back down and all of these things that I mentioned before, such as credit cards and ads in the paper for jobs and many other things that we fought for, we were able to uh, succeed in changing attitudes. But some things like salaries, I mean, it may have improved a little, but not much more. Mm. Why do you think some things succeeded and some didn't? I think what we were asking for were things that were easier to pass. I think what we're, what's being asked for now is, uh, is more subtle. I know one of the big ones was the, the campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment. What was the Equal Rights Amendment and what was the goal? The goal was to assure equality. In other words, they should be, it should not be denied based upon the person's sex. The, the wording of the Equal Rights Amendment was very simple. Mm -hmm. Our feeling was that many of the types of discrimination that existed could be changed state by state, but it would have been better if it, there were an amendment to the Constitution in order to do that. Now, with most amendments, there were no time limits. Mm -hmm. You could work on getting this amendment passed, and you had plenty of time. What was sexist about this whole thing was that Congress put a time limit on it, and we were unable to meet whatever, I don't remember how many states had to pass it in order for it to become an, an amendment. Right. Phyllis Schlafly, who was against abortion, and uh, against many of the things that we were fighting for, was able to get a lot of women behind her and her point of view. And so we had a fight on our hands that resulted in the fact that we weren't able to get this amendment passed within the time frame. There is talk now about reissuing it as an amendment. Of course, now with the political situation the way it is, it's unlikely to happen. Well, it sounds like in some ways it's because you made such progress on the easy issues that then it got harder when... It got harder, there's no doubt about it, on the hard issues. So it was harder to maintain the energy necessary to fight. And uh, there was a lot of infighting. Now, I can't remember the details, but uh, it, was, it was, we just became dysfunctional. And I found out that these kinds of things do go on mm. in any kind of movement. 
And it wasn't just going on in our locale, it was going on around the country. And there were, there were debates within our chapter prior to that, because when we first started out, we were involved with things that everybody agreed upon, such as the, those issues that I mentioned. Abortion was not one of them. Hmm. It, was, it became a, a polarizing issue. And a number of women just, you know, would drop out because they, even if they supported abortion, they felt it was too radical an issue and we wouldn't draw in enough membership if we were involved in abortion, the right to abortion. There was another thing that was going on around that time. There were women in our chapter who were not only opposed to abortion, but were opposed to the whole issue of equality for lesbians. So that was another issue that became uh, explosive throughout the country. And a lot of the women that started out just dropped out. Hmm. And I was, I felt caught in the middle because I tried to accommodate these groups. And I found it at some point it was impossible. And one day I just walked out. I just, I was presiding over the meeting. I walked out with the minutes and left. I, and I realized that that was the right thing to do because then I called up the National Now and brought in mediators. And um, the chapter was disbanded and new chapters were formed. I guess there's something about new times and new issues need to have new groups formed specifically around those issues. Because otherwise you can't, you can't maintain the coalition necessarily that you need. That, one of the things that we discussed around that time was that um, coalitions were not effective because they drew, there were so many issues involved. There was no focus on a particular area and we would be less effective that way. I, at that point, got involved on the state level. So what year did that happen that you formed the state chapter? And It was sometime around 1975 or a little later. I was, I was active in it until about 1984, 83 or 84. I was finance chair during that time. And I liked working on a state level, on larger issues, statewide issues. I, I felt that we were more effective as a state organization. I never wanted to get involved on the national level mm -hmm. because I still, you know, I had my children that I was raising. I had a family and I, I wanted to maintain that. So how did you, because I think this is a conflict for a lot of people, how did you balance this kind of work? I mean, you worked part-time and then full-time and then you had a family and then you also. Initially, I got involved before I started working full-time. Now, I was lucky, number one, in terms of, uh, taking care of my family. As a teacher, I had my holidays. I had my evenings free. I was finished at 2.30 in the afternoon. So I was home when my children came home from school. That made it easy. You know, they were in elementary school and in high school, and they were pretty independent. And I also, fortunately, your dad, he was wonderful as a father. I didn't have that problem of trying to bring my children along to the various meetings that I attended. I didn't want to drastically change their lives so that I could maintain my activities. First of all, I didn't think that they would enjoy it. And second of all, I don't think I could do any, I could be free to be me when I had to be mom as well. So, uh, you know, my husband was well, he also, I didn't have to fight him on these issues. He was very much in favor of most of the issues I was involved in. As ACLU director, he, in fact, was involved in a lot of those issues as well. I know of a number of women who, um, 
you know, got divorced as a result of this. When women's consciousness became raised, they wanted some changes within their own families. They wanted to be treated equally. They didn't want their husbands to expect them to have a meal on the table um, when they came home from work or object to them going back to work. So in those days, those things were going on. And I, I guess I had it easy that way. And that was another thing that we as feminists tried to do, was try to change the way we raised our children. I, I did not encourage my daughter to play with dolls. Um, I gave her responsibility. They shared in the household chores. I tried to stay away from talking about what boys do, what girls do. There were books coming out that treated girls and boys equally. There were records, free to be you and me. I mean, there was just so much going on in those days. And I think in their own classrooms, there were discussions going on. Right. So the world was changing, at least where we were living. I don't know. I think very, I look back on those days very positively. There were frustrations. And eventually I tired of uh, being actively involved. But nevertheless, I think, you know, we had some successes. And that's what I had to focus on, those successes. What kind of advice would you give to people who are trying to get involved now, not just in the women's movement, but just politically, but also in the women's movement? Well, one of the things that's, that, that I, I remembered saying to your brother was that you have to focus on, on a particular issue, one or two issues. You and I have just talked about the fact that if we're involved with too many things, it kind of dilutes each type of issue. And to try to keep focusing on bringing new people in and getting them actively involved. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a turnover in people who are active. People who are going to get tired are going to get worn out, get discouraged, and they're going to leave. So you have to have ways of drawing in new people, getting them involved. And so membership is, is critical. There were people who were actively involved with drawing in new members and keeping young people active. That's what I'm hopeful about, because a lot of the people who are working now, who are fighting all of these issues, and by the way, we still see, seem to be fighting a lot of the issues uh, that we were fighting way back in the 60s. I see very much very similar things that they're doing. They're taking action on one or two particular issues. They're writing to their legislators, or they're actually going down to um, the, the state uh, legislatures and lobbying to make these changes. They're insisting upon town hall meetings with the senators, the state and the local legislators, and making their views heard. So I, you know, this, this kind of activity is the same kind of activity that we took in those days. And to show you how difficult it is for women to move up and to be treated equally, the fact that 40% of the women in this country actually voted for Trump is just mind-boggling. So some of the people who are, are resistant to women's equality are women themselves. They are um, part of the, the culture and uh, attitudes are very hard to change. It's easy for someone to understand that a woman has, should have a right to her own credit card, but a right to control her own body seems to be another issue altogether. There's a combination of politics, tradition, and religion that make it so difficult. And as long as women don't have control over their own bodies, they're not going to be treated equally. They're not going to have full equality. 
Right. And that's not just abortion, it's also birth control. It's birth control as well. I mean, it's family planning. You know, we take a few steps in the right direction and then 10 steps back. But I see some, I feel like there might be a little bit of a rebirth of the women's movement coming out of this election, feeling under attack, like very specific issues and and with the obviousness of how how sexist Trump is and how certain things have sort of been necessary to galvanize a lot of people. I think you're right, because I think there are a lot of young women who who grew up and succeeded because their mothers had gone before them and, and succeeded in getting a lot of things accomplished. And so they became rather blasé about the whole thing. And so they're getting involved now. And I think it's wonderful to see that. And that's what you need. I mean, we said that even while I was active there that you have to bring in new blood, you have to bring in young people, get them active, keep this going. The expectations for women and how they live their lives and men has changed drastically. And I have seen couples, young couples, how they share in responsibilities uh, with their children and with their household and with their lives. You don't have a situation in which one member of this couple dominates the way it used to be, where men were required to behave in certain ways and carry on in certain ways and women in certain ways as well. So I think attitudes about a woman's place and a man's place in society has changed drastically. And I don't think that that's going to change back. Mm. So um, I'm proud of, of having had something to do with that. Thank you for listening to Mobilize. We want to hear your story. Go to www.mobilizehere.com and submit your story.